Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film All That Heaven Allows from 1955 with my brilliant guest, Sarah Royce. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. So today on the show, we are talking about All That Heaven Allows from, what is it, 1953? 55. 55. That's right. Magnificent Obsession was 54, and this came after that. Yes, yes. Okay, got it. 55, classic movie expert right here. Didn't write the date of the movie down. (laughs) (laughs) That shows you the state of mind we were in when we filmed this. Um, so yes, I saw this movie for the first time last year with Sarah. I should say, you guys are so lucky at home to have her here. Sarah is a professional researcher. She is a classic movie genius. This week on the podcast, I am not the expert, she is. So we are so lucky to have my friend Sarah here. We're both named Sarah, she spells it with an H, I spell it without, you know, to make things fun. And yeah, so this week we watched All That Heaven Allows. The first time I saw this movie was with Sarah one year ago. We were having a crappy day, and I said, Sarah, I need a movie night. And she said, girl, I got the movie for you. And we watched All That Heaven Allows. I'm going to give a plot summary, but like, Sarah, do you want to just, the people at home, how great is this movie? This movie, I mean, it's like a, a mug of hot chocolate. Yeah. It's just, you know, comfort food. It's um, what you watch when it's raining outside and you don't really feel like going out anywhere or doing anything. It's like pre-Nancy Myers, Nancy Myers. There we go. Like the whole movie is just one big Nancy Myers kitchen, right? So the plot of the movie, it's a Douglas Sirk film, and he was a director in the 50s who was kind of scrutinized for making women's films, films that women would like, which, you know... That's just bullshit. Let's just say that. Um, But he did a lot of melodramas, which isn't totally a style that's done in film anymore. And he made these stunning looking films that are just like someone painted them. Like they're gorgeous. And this movie is about, there's this widow who lives in kind of a rich suburb of Connecticut and she belongs to the country club set. That's Jane Wyman, I should say. And her gardener is Rock Hudson, who's like about 10 years maybe younger than her. And they fall in love and develop this beautiful romance. And he does not care what anyone thinks about him. And he's all about, like, living that Henry David Thoreau life. Um, Like, you be you. To thine own self be true. Um, That's Shakespeare, but you know. And uh, the people in their lives, the people in his life are awesome and they can accept her, but the people in her life cannot accept him. And so the conflict is, like, is she going to leave this life she knows to be with the man she loves? Um, Would you say that's an accurate plot summary, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, let's do it. Let's dive in. Uh, opening thoughts, Sarah? I think this film is one of the most beautifully photographed technicolor films I have ever seen, ever. And every color, all the color choices mean something. Like, one, the one thing about melodrama is that it's, it's not subtle. There's no, like, subtle hidden symbolism in anything. It's all right there. All the colors are in your face. The dialogue, everything, the costume choices, like it's easy to see and understand what's going on. There's that part in the very beginning where she comes down wearing the red dress and her kids are like, whoa, mom. And it's like, you know, that's a conscious choice. Associating the color red with like feeling and passion is not a new idea at all. And there was a line about that dress. So some of the mean people in Jane Wyman's world, one of them is named Mona, and she's clearly the worst. She's so mean. But the line she says when she sees this woman in this red dress, who, like, looks gorgeous in a red dress, and widows can wear whatever they want, okay? She doesn't have to wear black forever, but whatever. What the line that Mona says to Jane Wyman is, nothing like red to attract attention, Um, because she's kind of jealous, and she thinks that all the men are going to be all into Jane Wyman now that she's all single from, you know, her husband dying. Yeah. Well, and also that party that they go to at the very beginning, uh, Carrie, who's the Jane Wyman character, and Harvey, you know, solid, reliable Harvey, her date for that evening. Mm -hmm. Everything about that room and the people in it are all blue. The walls are blue. The lamps are blue. The women are wearing blue dresses. The lighting has, like, some kind of blue filter going over it everything is blue in that room and then she walks in and it's like bam red dress she's hot to trot she's ready to go sarah i did not notice that <laughs> at all 
and it's beautiful. Oh my God. So I watched, I have the Criterion Collection DVD of this mm -hmm. movie, which highly recommend, really great. I watched it with a commentary on. And so one of the things they pointed out is that red in particular really pops well. When you develop the Technicolor films, it's like, bam, red. And so that's surrounded with all the blue. It's just, even like her best friend, Sarah. It's spelled with no H, I checked it yeah, out. There's a lot of Sarahs in this episode, guys. Uh, yeah, her best friend, Sarah, even is wearing a blue dress. Even though Sarah is kind of, we get the impression Sarah is set apart from the rest of the society because she's actually yeah. like a nice, rational human being. Yes, and she has red yeah. hair. Hell yeah, she does. So she's got the red on her. Therefore, she has passion and heart. I like it, yeah. Also, the barn at the end of the movie, like the house that they live in. So, I mean, spoiler alert, obviously, if you were listening to this, you're aware that there will be spoilers. But um, the barn that Rock Hudson builds for her is the gorgeous red at the very end. Yeah. So now that I know that that was like purposely symbolic, that's so beautiful. Well, also he is consistently shown in like, you know, red plaid flannel. Yeah, and all the cars that everyone drives with the obvious blaring exception of Rock Hudson's car, they're all shades of blue. All those like huge Cadillac sedans in shades of blue. I did not notice. And now that you're saying it, I'm like, oh yeah, her car was blue. Mm -hmm. He's the only one that has a different car. His car is made of wood because he likes trees. Um. <laughs> yeah, again, again, nothing is subtle. Nothing is subtle in this movie. This movie is not going to make you think at all. No, but that's okay. Like, first of all, you said it in the beginning. Not only is it visually stunning, everything looks beautiful. It is. This is like an autumnal, wintry, gorgeous film. If you want to feel some rainy day autumn vibes, you put this on right away. It looks visually stunning, but then they also have beautiful music. So it's got this beautiful classical piano music playing in the background for the most part. And then what I noticed at this viewing is that she plays the piano and she plays beautiful classical music, and then he plays the piano later, they both play the piano, and he's playing like contemporary sassy music. So you know that they're a good mix because they're a little bit from two different worlds. Yeah. I loved yeah. that. Although that's definitely not Rock Hudson singing. That is definitely someone else's voice because Rock Hudson was like pretty tone deaf. I was getting Dean Martin vibes. Yeah, I don't know who the voiceover singer is. I didn't see their name oh, on yeah, anything. I don't think it was Dean Yeah, Martin. no, but there is a little bit of a, he, he's cut from that a similar mold, yeah. Let's talk about some Rock Hudson. His real name is not Rock. His real name in real life, I think was Ron. Roy, it was Roy. It was Roy, so close, so close. His name was not Rock Hudson. No. He hated the name Rock Hudson. How come that was his name? Do you know? Uh, Rock of Gibraltar and the Hudson River. Really? Did, he didn't choose it though, right? Oh, no, no, no. It was an agent or some like publicist person type. Was that his agent that wrote the book about him? Right? Was it, didn't one of his agents write a book after he passed away? Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. I haven't read any bios on him. I know there's like a lot of salacious stuff that's been said about him because the poor guy, you know, he was forced to stay in the closet. He died of AIDS related complications. So there's a whole, that whole aspect of his life. I honestly don't know. That must have been so hard too, to be like known for this, like I'm a macho masculine man and to not be able to be your true self because people can't. Well, he was out like society. To people who, like Jane Wyman. Yeah, Jane Wyman knew he was gay. All of his female co-stars knew and the people in his There was circle. a whole list. It was like Elizabeth Taylor, Julie Andrews. They were all like, yeah, you know, like no big deal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they knew. But he, he wasn't allowed to let the wider public at large. They weren't allowed to know. So, I mean, yeah. Although he did get married at one point, I saw. He married this one woman who apparently might have also been closeted herself. Um, and then she divorced him for mental cruelty. But the word on the street was that she was trying to blackmail him um, about his being gay. And by on the street, I mean literally just on the internet. Just search Rock Hudson marriage on the internet and you will find that story. There is a lot of salacious detailing about his personal life. Um, one of the ones I found and that I read was that how do you say this guy's name? Is it is it Jim Na Neighbors? I think so. The guy that played Gomer Pyle? I think so. Apparently there was like a joke party invitation that went out that said it was like, come to Rock Hudson and, and Jim Neighbors, I don't know how to say his name, sorry, their wedding. Um, and it was a joke uh, sent by like their friends, but it got out to the media somehow. And then after that, they were like never allowed to speak to each other again for fear that they would be both outed because neither one was out at the time. Yeah, I, I think I read something similar. Yeah, that's really unfortunate that, yeah. Well, it kind of ties into what's going on in this movie. People are so cruel to each other. Just the way this backstabbing and the gossiping and that 
need and that drive to keep up appearances and to maintain some surface level of propriety and, you know, maintain your class, stay in your class, stay in your circle and don't venture outside it. I just watched it again today. And I was watching that part where Carrie takes Ron to meet all of her friends. And then the older woman in the blue beaded dress, she's like, oh, you look familiar to me. And Ron says to her, yeah, Mrs. Humphrey, I've been doing your gardening for the past three years. And she like gets physically ill. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm socializing with the hired help. Just like that. Oh, and she immediately needs to leave. Like she can't be anywhere near this gardener. Well, and they're supposed to be the quote unquote civilized ones. And they're the ones that they're like, why wouldn't you choose our group? Clearly we're the best. And I'm thinking the friends that he has, that clam bake night looked like the most fun party ever in the most beautiful house ever. I want to live in that house. It's so pretty. That skylight. Why would you ever give that up? to hang out with Mona and Howard who gropes you. Yeah, oh, that's that whole party at Mick and Alita stands in sharp contrast to the country club party she'd already been to in an earlier scene. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I did note, so this this movie is it's all white people, predominantly upper middle class white, like Connecticut types. Um, but I think it's notable that the very first guests that show up at Mick and Alita's party, they're Latino because their names are like Manuel and Rosanna. And they, you know, and they, they brought their daughter Margarita with them. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, people of color do exist in this well, And they have a much more interesting circle. So it's like, yes, people of color, yes, diversity in general, but like also they all have careers that are unique. They all are kind of much more accepting of each other and there to have fun as a group instead of like the country club people which are just there to judge and gossip about each other that's all they're doing at the party yeah i was gonna say i think there's like music at the i think there's music at the country club party i can't even remember but nobody's like dancing or anything they're all just standing around drinking the men at that party are in sharp contrast also to ron slash rock hudson they're all older men balding receding hairlines some of them have like beer bellies you know these are men who sit at desks all day you know then there's ron ron who is out active doctor in trees they make a pointed reference to the fact that he is tan so oh he works outside well he looks a lot better than all of you (laughs) um also it really bothers me that they're celebrating at the country club they're celebrating that one old rich man who got like a hot young bride you know and then if jane wyman does it and brings like a handsome young man they're all like this is an outrage and i'm like do you not notice the double standards and that line that that woman says to him i forget what it is but it's like at least i know he's not marrying me for my money yeah that weird girl Joanne. I love that Sarah calls Joanne a moron. Does she? I don't remember now. I I think there's also a little bit of an implication. She has a Southern accent and she says, my family hasn't had a dime since the Civil War. So it's like, oh, are we supposed to read that as her family were slave owners? But then then they've been poor ever since. I mean, oh. I am so glad you caught that, Sarah. I mean, you know, we're it's like we're having a rough moment right now in this world. Mm. And I feel like the parts that I really gravitated to this time were all the hopeful parts. So I feel like a lot of the insults just went over me this time. Like I couldn't even focus on them. But I'm actually glad that you did because that adds so many layers. Like that just shows she's like white and racist and horrible. Like that's what that shows. Pretty much. Yep. Yep. They all are the worst. The worst. I will say Sarah is so interesting though because she can live in their world but clearly isn't like them. And what I thought, there was one scene where there was a maid. Do you remember that scene? There's like a maid uh, working, like vacuuming or something. And she shuts the door on the maid so she can have a conversation with Jane Wyman's character. So you're like, she's lovely and accepting, but she still has that like upper crust. There is still very much a wall between the classes. Yeah. And I did love, um, so we we love Agnes Moorhead. She's great. Oh, she's the best. She's the best. And I always love it when she's not the villain because I feel like she's always the villain. So to have her like, show more range because she has all the range so to let her like showcase that yeah that's my fave i just love her she's also at the party that ron goes to sarah and her husband george make a point of being at the door to greet them and sarah tells ron you know i'm carrie's friend i hope i can be your friend too and george mentions you know fond memories of ron's father so they're like legit like hey welcome to our party i hope you have a good time we want to get to know you better and be friends. While meanwhile, everyone else is like, oh, the gardener. 
Well, and then when he stands up for Jane Wyman, Carrie, that's her name. I keep, I always call them by their actor names because it's too hard to remember character names. Let's be real. <laughs> um, but so she's at this party. This horrible man named Howard gropes her for the second time because early in the movie he gropes her without her permission and she's like, stop. And then now he's like, oh, since you brought this young man, that tells me that you're super into sex. And if you're super into sex, you're clearly into me, a virile, disgusting old man. Carrie shoves Howard and he falls into the chair and drops his glass. She's like, get off me, you gross lech. Who is married? He is married with children. He's got a poor downtrodden wife at home that we never even see. So Carrie stands up for herself and shoves him off of her. He like falls back and Rock, he's about to stand up and Rock Hudson goes up to him. He's like, I think you better stay right where you are, dude. Yeah, he threatens him. That's it. That's it. But then as they're leaving, all those rotten, horrible people are like, oh my God, did you see what the gardener did to poor Howard? And I'm like, did you see what poor Howard was doing? He's a monster. Yeah. So to us, the choice is very clear what she should be doing. Oh, this reminds me of, I just watched Crossing Delancey on TCM and they talked about this, how like, that's one of those rom-coms that's really fun to watch, but the choice is so obvious between which two, like which of these two men she should pick. And so the whole movie, you're in the audience going like, pick the nice one. And in this one, (laughs) it's so clear also. You're like, clearly pick Rock Hudson. He's way better than your Connecticut set. (sighs) Yeah, there isn't really even a choice. I mean, Harvey and Howard are the two other men that she interacts with. And I mean, Harvey is kind of a continuation of her dead husband, Martin. You know, they were part of the same circle and Harvey was a friend of his. And it should be mentioned, there are three, there are three decent Connecticut people. I feel like the decent Connecticut people that she's friends with are Harvey, the doctor, and Sarah. They are the three nice Connecticut people. They are the people supportive of her choice. But I feel like it's not even a choice of Howard or Rock Hudson because she says no to Howard, or not Howard. She says no to Harvey at the beginning. She's, she's pretty much like, yeah, he's like, I can offer you companionship. And she's like, no, I'm good. So I don't even think it's a choice of that. It's like not even between two men. It's between like a lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Harvey isn't even, he's only in that one sequence. He shows up. Yeah. They have a cocktail at her house. Then they go to that party. He drives her home and asks her to marry him. That's the last time we see him. And then there's like a mention of him in a dialogue later where he's gone on another trip. The, the marriage offer that he makes to her is one of friendship and companionship. So totally platonic and sexless and everything that goes along with that. But he's also physically distant too. Like he's not going to be there. He's always on the move. It would be like she wasn't married again at all. He's there to point out that that um, trophy is on the mantle so that when the trophy is gone, the son can be like, wait, the trophy was here when Harvey was here. Like that's one of the only Harvey reasons to be there. Yeah. Well, and again, he's a reminder of, of Martin. I was thinking this earlier too. So Carrie has lost her husband, but the kids have also lost their dad. And so Harvey is a reminder of their dad. He's kind of, you know, keeping their dad's memory alive in a way. He's going to have anecdotes and, oh yeah, I remember one time your dad and I did this. So he's like, yeah, he's keeping the dad alive. He's a continuation of the life they've always known, the only life. He's what's familiar. Yep. And he, he drives a blue car, so he fits in. Yeah. Although like, oh my God, I hate how much her kids like are so for Howard and so anti-Rock Hudson and yet are not around at all and do not, like they're grown. It's not like they're 10. First of all, let's point this out. Carrie got married to her husband at 17. At 17. So she's still so young. She has these grown kids who like don't live at home, who work in the city and go to school in the city who aren't there. And yet they're like, you are ruining our lives with this decision. And I'm like, come on, you're not there. There's also the implication, I don't know, it might not even be implied. It might be pretty overt that she basically has no nothing to do when the kids aren't home. Like she's just in that house by herself. She doesn't have to clean it because she's got a housekeeper. She doesn't have to do any of the landscaping outside because she's got a hired garden service. She's in this house that's all decorated in tasteful neutrals. They reference the Egyptian mummy, right? Like you're buried in the tomb. She's already entombed. I mean, she, she wears gray. She wears like boring gray sweater sets. She's in that house. The only thing she does for her own pure enjoyment is play the piano in that one scene. The TV is never on. We never see the TV on. 
Well, that's because she didn't want it. Everyone's trying to push a TV on yeah, her. And all of her leisure time that she has, because she's a woman of leisure, she doesn't have to work. Her husband left her comfortably well off. She's sitting in the at the piano playing it in one scene. And that's like... That's it. That and hanging out with, with Sarah. And sometimes having... She goes to the butcher in that one scene. Yeah, that's about but it. But you're right. I was actually super jealous of her with the the money thing. I wish I could be James Wyman's character and just have like a small fortune so I could do whatever the hell I wanted. Well, I think I think clearly she has done nothing. I mean, at the very beginning, like she's meeting Ron, even though he says later that he's been working at her house for three years. So she never even noticed him. She says something about how after Martin died, the gardening service just kept going. So like her husband was the one who made all those arrangements. He paid for that landscaping to get done and he just took care of all that. She didn't have to worry about any of it. And then after he died, it stayed that way. She didn't even know who was in her front lawn. She had no idea. Yeah, although the beauty of this is like she comes alive an age that most people are considering like like, this is retirement age. That's when she's coming alive and experiencing life really for the first time. And I think that's really beautiful. I don't even know if she's not that old. I mean, if she got married at 17 and Ned looks like he's about 21, 22 years old, she's only in her She's 30s. probably like 40? No, not even. She's probably like in her late 30s, you know? Well, then how old is he? Okay, so Jane Wyman in real life, she was 38. Okay. Yeah, and Rock Hudson was 29. Okay. In my head, they were both older because they seemed more mature, you know? I mean, I get that vibe from older generations just because I feel like you looked older at a younger age. I've seen my my grandfather's high school graduation photo, and he would have graduated in the 50s. And he looks like he's 30, even though he's 18. So I don't know. I think people just looked older then, but that might be me. So, okay. Basically what happens is Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson fall in love, decide they're going to get married. Nobody can handle it. And who cares what everyone else thinks? Like, come on. But especially her kids, there are two instances. One, where Ned is like, what are you going to do? Sell my ancestral home? He doesn't say that. But it reminded me of Knives Out when that one character is like, this is our ancestral home. And the other guy's like, you bought it in 1986. Like, <laughs> that's what it reminded me of. But he was like, you're going to sell this house? I won't be a part of your life if you marry this man. Cut to one scene later. He's like, okay, I'm leaving the country for a year. You got to sell the house. It's too big for you. Bye. Um, but then the daughter, the daughter is an interesting character. I preferred her at the beginning of the movie with her cool, sassy glasses and talking about psychology. Like, I really liked that. And I hate that to, like, fall in love and grow up. It had to be like, lose your smart girl ways. You're a wife now. She was pretty sexist and stereotypical. Girl, those brains won't get you anywhere. There was a line, know? too, about what her husband said to her or something, or the guy that she ends up marrying. It's like, oh, it was, um, how can anyone so little be so smart and yet so pretty? Yeah, like all those things are mutually exclusive. You can't be smart and pretty. Side note about that guy. So he's uncredited at the end, but that's David Jansen. That's the original Dr. Kimball from The Fugitive. Whoa, that's nuts. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The Fugitive, so good so good i don't really know i'm sorry it's not in my wheelhouse i've seen the harrison ford one i mean the fugitive the movie is different in many ways because um i mean it is still the one-armed man is the guy that kills his wife and then he's found guilty of the murder and yeah so a lot of elements are the same although they obviously modernized it but my mom watched the fugitive i know that the tv show (laughs) the tv show is amazing it's so good and he's great he's great as as richard kimball so just side note, okay. fun TV fact. is not as much in my wheelhouse. I know that eventually Jane Wyman played a TV villain on like a, was it a soap opera or like something that sounded like a soap opera? And I thought that was interesting because I feel like she always played such sweet people. Oh, I don't know. I honestly don't know much about her later career, except that she did have a cameo on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. I saw that on her IMDb pitch too. I went way to go, Jane. My info on her, well, we should mention Jane Wyman, she was married five times. Her third husband was Ronald Reagan. Yep. Crazy. Um, so that happened. And they got divorced, I think, right either right before or right after she did this movie. They were married from 1940 to 1948. Oh, okay. So that, okay, I was off then. Um, but still. But yeah, she was, she was getting older. She was getting fewer offers of part. And, you know, she knew that eventually she would, if she wanted to stay acting, she would have to go to TV and soaps. Um, and so she, she like needed the, this Magnificent Obsession came out first. And that was kind of a boost to her career. 
And since that made so much money, then they made this one. And so she was kind of, I think, probably grateful to put off having to go to TV. But I mean, yeah, at 38 years old, what an old hag. I mean, I can't. Oh, my God. And she's so talented and her eyes are so expressive. I was noticing. So she won an Oscar in 1948 for Johnny Belinda. And I know she had a very dramatic role in that. I've never seen Johnny Belinda. I don't know if you have. I have seen it. Yes. She's very young um, and she's portrayed as this like very wide-eyed ingenue who is a deaf mute everyone thinks she's an idiot because she's a deaf mute and then someone realizes no she's actually really smart and she wants to learn just nobody knew how to teach her because she was a you know a special case she needed extra help she learns how to read and she you know is starting to gain some agency she's not totally dependent on her father and then, yeah, some jerk rapes her and gets her pregnant. And she has a little boy named Johnny. And uh, oh. yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks for sharing that. That sounds like the reason I probably haven't seen it is because it sounds really sad. And those are not usually the films you want to pop on on a Friday night. Yeah, it was nominated for Best Picture as well. It's okay. I don't know if I'd, you know, be chomping at the bit to see it again. But uh, I mean, she's great. She's so great. And she's great in this too. I mean, that was one oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, Mona the Gossip is overacted and exaggerated and stereotyped and the, even the two kids are kind of flat and two-dimensional and that, yet there's so much texture to Jane Wyman's performance as Carrie like you know yes. what's going on in her head and in her heart and she's not overacting even though this is a melodrama and so all the emotions and the feelings are heightened and you know this is a weepy women's picture so they you know they wanted they were aiming to make the audiences cry she doesn't overact a single second. Well, her eyes are so expressive. They're just like, she's so good at describing her feelings through her eyeballs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> she, it's, she's so good at that. Um, and then that scene where she she's crying with her daughter, where her daughter's going to get married. And she realizes like, oh my God, this was pointless. I gave up the love of my life for nothing. And she lowers her head and she starts to cry. Like that moment is so, so beautiful. That's the most famous scene in the movie is the scene that it's Christmas. Here, let's set the stage for everybody. Set the stage, Sarah. So it's Christmas. So there's all the trappings of, you know, Christmas time, love and joy and warmth and all that. The tree is decorated. There's a dozen presents under the tree, even though it's just the three of them. Oh, wait, before you keep going, we should mention that she bought a silver spruce from Rock Hudson. So they haven't seen each other in a while. Yeah. She bought a silver spruce from him. She thinks he might be with another woman, so she loses her nerve. That's just extra setting. The two of them are like gazing longingly at each other, but they think that they can't be together. So they can just, they don't even, like, they keep that distance between them. At the Christmas tree farm, just like in a Hallmark movie. So she, yeah, she's got the tree that she bought from Ron in the front window of the house. And the kids come home. And, okay, the kids basically, like, walk in, give their mom a hug, and immediately make a beeline for the presents under the tree because they're jerks. And they're grown adults again. We should mention this. They are not children. They are adults. Yeah, grown-ass adults. And, okay, costume choices. She is wearing black. She has rejected Ron because her kids wanted her to. So she's wearing black again. And so the commentary that's on the DVD I watched noted that her black dress is covered in like pearls or beads or something, almost like tears. <gasps> this is great commentary. Yeah. So it's almost like she's wearing her mourning again. She's a widow again. She's alone. Oh, and I feel like her daughter wears pink a lot too. Did that mean something? Uh, I don't know. I mean, her, her daughter would wear like, you know, a jaunty little neck scarf that had like a pattern or pink color. But in this Christmas scene, she's wearing head to toe fire engine red. Right, because she has her wedding ring. She points it out. She's like, look, mother, I'm getting married in February. And her mom's like, don't you think you're too young? And she's like, you were 17. And then I just went, oh, my God. Yeah. So the, so the daughter is ready to go out and find her own love. Oh, wait. And we should mention, too, that the daughter had a problem with the mother's relationship because she felt like she was getting flack at school somehow where it was like people were basically saying like your mom's a whore she's sleeping with a gardener and um she ends up getting in a fight with her boyfriend and that fight ends up spurring on their marriage yeah so it ended up being a good thing that they fought that one night when um her daughter comes home and it's like the final nail on the casket of her and ron's relationship where she has a fight with the son 
And the son's like, I'm not going to be in your life anymore if you marry this man. And he leaves. And then the daughter comes home crying like, my life is over. My relationship is over because of you and you're dating this gardener. So the mom's like, well, I guess I'm giving him up. And then again, like a month or less later, neither child cares. They're all off doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, my big takeaway from this is like, your children are grownups. Live your own life. <laughs> you know? I mean, I can't speak for Ned because Ned stays dumb and an idiot the whole movie. But Kay is like, well, yeah, but this is different. I mean, mom, you didn't really love Ron, right? And and she just looks at her daughter like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, that, like the moment where she put her, her face in her hands, like you said, and it's just like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I gave up the man I love for my children. And they don't even give a shit. And your daughter does like. She has a moment of realization. She has compassion for her at the end. Like she yeah. sees what's going on and goes, oh. So at least the daughter turns out okay. Hopefully. We never see the son turn out okay. <laughs> no, I mean, he's two dimensional. He's a caricature, yeah. a, cut, a cardboard cutout. He talks about going to Iran. So he's like basically being groomed to be like an oil industry executive, future business leader of America. Um, Sarah, you're forgetting that he's going to Paris for a year first. Um, how could you forget that? <laughs> that kid's going places, yeah. But those are all the trappings of success in the world that they live in. Yeah. So like all this stuff is planned out in, in advance. That's the life he's gonna lead. It's probably the life his dad led. It's the life that all the men in their social circle lead. And they're not gonna live a full beautiful life like Carrie and Ron are. With their really pretty house and their window that overlooks the lake with the deer. Yeah. Um, I do, before we like leave these people in the scene, there's that scene where the daughter goes into her bedroom and is crying. And the set design of that, that window, there's like a glass window where all this beautiful light shines through that's in the daughter's room. Yeah. And it's such a gorgeous piece of cinema that even if you just want to watch that scene on mute, if you just want to mute it, just look at it. It's beautiful. Honestly, you could probably watch this entire movie on mute and still understand everything that's going on. Yeah. We keep throwing around the word melodrama. Do you want to explain maybe for people who don't know what a melodrama is, like what the traits are of a melodrama? A melodrama, I mean, it was usually, I think, used derogatorily because it, it was like, it was a picture that had to do more with emotion. There's drama and violence and heightened emotion. There's mystery and intrigue. And it's a lot concerned with women's feelings and women's stories. Yeah. And I think it's also like things happen to you. So it's not about like choices you make necessarily. It's like outer circumstances that are affecting you. Um, but I feel like that was more of a Douglas Sirk thing than a melodrama thing. I think a lot of his movies are like, you're in these trappings and you must find a way to be free. Yeah. I, I Well, I have the booklet that came with my DVD. Yes. I'm trying to, I, I did read something. While you're doing that, I can talk about Douglas Sirk. Hey, everybody. Douglas Sirk was a director. Um, he was famous mainly in like, what, the 50s? His films are gorgeous, and they panned them as quote-unquote women's pictures because, God forbid, we make movies for women that they might enjoy. Um, and the reason they were women's pictures was because they were, like we had said, usually melodramas. Everything's very dramatic, heightened, and they all turn out okay. Usually they have happy endings, um, and like sometimes impossible things occur, like in Magnificent Obsession, which I won't ruin for you, but that's an example of like a very melodramatic melodrama. I feel like this is a more realistic melodrama. Cool things about Douglas Sirk is that he was born in Germany to Danish parents. And uh, he made movies in three different languages, English, German, and Danish. And um, he has gorgeous cinematography. Uh, his characters often contend with repression. Uh, two of his, I would say his most famous movies, like what I, I didn't know a lot about him before last year. All I had seen of his was Imitation of Life, which is like iffy now because it's about like a woman, a black woman trying to pass for white um, and like the ramifications of that in her world. Uh, it, I, I remembered liking it, but I do wonder if it holds up now, like how I would feel watching it now. I think, I think it would. I don't think I've seen, so Douglas Sirk made a remake of that movie. It had already been made in black and white earlier. I've, I don't think I've seen the remake. I think I've only seen the black and white original. Oh, and I, I don't know if I, who is in the black and white one? Uh, I can't remember. Okay. I feel like I might have seen both, but I think I very specifically remember the color one. It's like Lana Turner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. gorgeous looking. Lana Turner is in the, in, in the, in the color one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think 
it it definitely has things to say about gender because it's all women it's all unmarried women raising their teenage daughters and the world that they're about to enter and it's also about race like you said that the black housekeeper's daughter is attempting to pass as white but you know that forces her to reject her mother at a certain level and her mother is heartbroken by that and yeah so i Maybe there are certain parts of it that don't stand up, sure, but I think it does still have something interesting to say. Well, and I I did, I remember, I think something I liked about that movie too was Lana Turner ended up, like she had a better relationship with her maid's daughter than she did with her own daughter, and the maid had a better relationship with Lana Turner's daughter, you know? Like it was Mm -hmm. a, an examination of like what people need in relationships and from each other. Yeah. And I will say about Douglas Sirk too, I didn't know this, his wife was Jewish, they used to live in Germany, and they got out uh, right before like the Holocaust. They got out in 1937. His wife was Jewish. He got her out. I'm like, God bless you, Douglas Sirk. That's good. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think, and also some of the film jobs he got in Germany were because Jews were already being quietly shipped away. So, I mean, I'm sure he saw some of that and was like, yeah, we got to get out of this place, honey. Well, I'm so glad they got out. I'm glad that he was able to like <laughs> save his wife and get out and and live a better life. After a certain point, I mean, you know, the the Nazi machine was taking over the film industry and they were making films that were hugely propaganda, propagandic and nationalistic. And so the kind of pictures he was able to make were probably being restricted and limited. And so at a certain point, he may have said like, well, I'm not going to make this propaganda trash. Um, I do want to note too, I feel like I don't know a ton about Douglas Sirk. I know he's more revered now, especially for his cinematography, but I love that he is willing to examine like women's issues and women's pictures and that he works with women. Like this screenplay was written by a woman. This was written by Peggy Thompson under, oh, under the name Peg Fenwick. That was her like writing name. And she sounded cool too. What I found out about her was... She worked in the State Department, advising on women's affairs in the Far East in Europe towards the end of her life, which is just badass. She was mainly like uh, in the department where you you do continuity writing. So she wasn't always a screenplay writer. She only wrote like three or four screenplays and she wrote a play out there, but she was mainly like a helper of writing. And she spoke fluent French. So like all the films that were French in that time, she like helped to, you know, oh. put the French phrases in and stuff, which is cool. Um, but she wrote this uh, kind of very sexy piece called Whirlpool of Desire. And apparently she was embarrassed by how sexy that was. And that was how she became kind of known among people. And that really embarrassed her. Oh, God. And I kind of love that. <laughs> They're like, oh, God, I wrote this super sexy piece. And now I'm the super sexy piece writer. Like, no. Well, this this is actually adapted from a novel. Yes, by Edna L. Lee and Harry Lee. But I know nothing about the novel. I just wrote down their names. I only know that the ending was changed. Again, because of the... The commentary that was in the DVD, they said that, so the original ending in the book is Carrie is down in the cellar and she gets overcome by gas fumes because there's like a gas leak down in the basement. And so Ron has to go rescue her. And they flopped it in this one. It's Ron that gets injured. This is way better. And Carrie has to, yeah. Okay, so one of the essays that comes with the DVD I got, it's an essay that was translated from the German. It's um, Fassbinder, the filmmaker. And he says... I, I, this is amazing. So he says, in Douglas Sirk's movies, the women think. I haven't noticed that with any other director, with any. Usually the women just react, do the things women do, and here they actually think. And that's, I I mean, that's pretty much, yeah, that is exactly what's going on in this movie. One of the fascinating things too is that, you know, in a lot of movies, when the male lead kisses his love interest, the camera is often perched on the man's shoulder. So you're like looking over the man's shoulder and you don't, you might see only part of his face or not any of it, but you see the woman in front of you. So you're, you know, you're experiencing this love story from the man's point of view. But the very first time in this movie, when Carrie and Ron kiss, the camera is behind Carrie's shoulder and we see Ron coming towards her. I love that so much. Don't you? I didn't know that. Don't you love that? I mean, yeah. Well, I love what's displayed in this movie as we, I feel like we've definitely talked on this podcast about the difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity. And Ron in this movie is a perfect example of what masculinity is. Like, good masculinity like he cares for her he's thinking about her with um he's like it's gonna be cold later bring a jacket you know don't forget your boots like he he cares about her in that way that piece with the wedgwood where she says she likes the wedgwood but she he couldn't find all the pieces he finds them and glues it together for her yeah like the thought the care absolutely yeah and they're not like forcing them to be this way it's like 
he lets her be who she is and he's not trying to force her into any like any box except to get married he really wants to marry yeah. her yeah i mean it's funny because he's supposed to be like a free spirit and yet he still very much wants you know the convention of marriage he's not proposing like hey baby let's live together let's shack up and play house it's like yeah we're gonna get married because that's what people in the 50s do although i forgot what she said when she, she was like dude why what's the rush and i forget what he said but I remember being like, yeah, dude, what's the rush? Take a second. Why, why, what, what's with the rush? Oh yeah, what does he say in that scene? It didn't stick with me. She's getting, she's getting so much pushback. She's like, let's maybe, you know, make our engagement a little bit longer. And he's like, no, I want to marry. I, I don't know, maybe it's supposed to just be another sign of the fact that he knows his own mind. He's not swayed by society. He knows what he wants and goes after it. He's been working on this house. He's been building a home for her, like, you know, renovating that old mill and making it habitable for them to be together. And he listens to what she likes. She's like, I love a fireplace. He's like, done. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. He actually listens to her. I think I wrote it down somewhere about all the things he listened about. And I was like, good work listening. That house too. He builds her the most beautiful house. Everyone that is like a free spirit in this movie has a stunning home. They're not like big like the Connecticut homes, but they all are cozy and warm. And it's not just that they're like cabiny. It's like they're mid-century modern, but in the best possible way. Mid-century modern is my jam. It's all it's all great. The rich colors, all the textures and the the woodwork. It's just beautiful. Yeah. And was there something with the deer? Was that a symbolism thing? Because at the end there's a deer and he's like, he has that great line about, you know, you're home now. Or are you home to stay? And she's like, I'm home or something like that. The deer is just kind of, you know, hammering further that he's nature boy, as one of the upper crust blue bloods calls him. He's very, very rooted in nature symbolism. And he's supposed to be earthy and, you know, works outdoors, like we said. So because we saw that deer earlier. So I was like, mm, what's What's the deal with this deer? I mean, I guess in that that shot where we see the deer running away and then it cuts immediately to Ron and Carrie lying on the ground. I mean, you know, this movie came out during the enforcement of the Hayes Code. So I think you can read like, okay, something, something happened between one shot and the other. You know, if they're now, they were standing up and now they're lying on the floor together in front of the fireplace. So... Why not? Sure. I mean, he's handsome. It's great. They have. I think they have lovely chemistry. I think he's such a great leading man in this. Oh no, they've got. They have great chemistry. They they really do. So the Hayes Code often led to you know married couples being shown sleeping in twin beds. But I noticed in this movie there are not twin beds in Carrie's house. She's got like a full or a queen bed. But that would have been okay because there was no sex going on in that house because she is a widow and the man she loves is barred to her because of society and her own kids. Sarah, you I, you notice so many awesome things. Like you are blowing my mind with all these facts. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about Rock Hudson's character because we, we talked about it a little bit, but they refer to him so many times as independent. Um, what's, they have like a really great phrase for him that I can't remember right now where it's like he knows his own mind or so it's in that scene when they when Carrie that is picks up Walden and she reads from it and then she and Alita have that question is it's in that scene it's in that scene I think what I like about this more than I like about Magnificent Obsession is Magnificent Obsession gets like weirdly religious kind of almost um and this is just like more spiritual and more like connect to nature and life life is good when Carrie meets Rock Hudson's friends their names are Mick and Alita and they are cool as hell and at first we find out like Mick used to be one of the stockbrokery type of guys, but then he went to war, like the Korean War with Rock Hudson and got a new frame of mind and came home and like became another tree grower. They, they have tree farms, right? They both have tree yeah, farms. Yeah. And it, like it saved his marriage with Alita and she's so cool. And I love that, that we have like the positive influence of Alita that's opposing the negative influence of Mona. Because mm -hmm. it's not just like, all women are catty, all women are terrible. No, it's like we have one catty, terrible woman and we have one supremely awesome woman who talks way more than Mick does, which is great. But the quote that she reads to Carrie, Carrie picks up Thoreau and as in Henry David Thoreau, as in Walden. And um, she says something like, oh, do you, is this, you know, your favorite book? And she goes, it's Mick's Bible, but he doesn't read it. He lives it. And I love that. Yeah. But I was like, but he had to have read it at some time, right? Anyway, the, the long-awaited quote, here it is. Uh, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation, 
What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. Why should we be in such desperate haste to succeed and in such desperate enterprises? If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. I love that yeah, line. I think that's actually a pretty famous line. Oh, it's super famous. It's, it's quoted in a Pink Floyd song, so. Oh yeah, it's it's in many things. Uh, but yeah, we've heard it many, many times. But then in this movie, it's like, it's Ron's statement piece. It's like, that's the core of who he is, that passage. Absolutely, yeah. Marches to the beat of his own drum. As if we hadn't already gotten that, you know, like I said, nothing in this movie is subtle. He wears flannel. He's comfortable and free. The other thing I love about their meeting, when they were meeting up with Nick and Alita for their, their clam bake, there's that one part where Carrie stays by the car and Ron runs ahead to see Nick and the two of them have their heads together and then they look at Carrie and laugh. And Carrie immediately, she like almost flinches thinking that she's been made fun of because that's the world that she comes from where people are just cruel to each other. And then later they say, oh no, Ron was just telling me that he thought you had a great set of legs. Like she's startled that the laugh wasn't at her expense. It was an appreciation. And you're making me realize they set it up later too because the world she's used to, her Connecticut world where older men might marry younger women, when she sees Rock Hudson with that younger girl who's the cousin of um, Alita, she automatically assumes that they're together because that's the world she comes from. Like why wouldn't they be? Yep. You know? So you're right. Both times it's like, showing her the opposite side of what her world could be and how everyone works together in that house and everyone has fun together and like builds things together, you know, Mm -hmm. like when they're setting up the table and putting it together and, you know, one person brings in the lobster and one person brings in the wine and one person brings in the clams and everyone's here to laugh and to dance and to have fun and to support each other. It's just great. And those skylights, just a side note, there's skylights in their house that are more beautiful than any skylights I've ever seen. The whole party is just like, yeah, I want to go to that. I want to go to a party, period. I haven't I haven't been out in six months. <laughs> you make a great point. So not only can we not go to parties, but we will never get to go to a party that's that great. In that party that's all warm and happy and everyone's dancing and singing, you notice that outside that spectacular skylight, there seems to be pretty strong wind. There's like a storm. Are you saying that's a metaphor for where their relationship's going to go, Sarah? I am saying that's a hella metaphor. There's metaphors left, right, and center in every single shot of this movie. Oh my God, even just the start of it, when he's talking about they first have oh he has a great pickup line by the way so they're talking about the trees and he says something about the silver tipped spruce like oh you've got a silver tipped spruce that only grows where there's love and then um he's like lady i'm not going to be back for the season um but do you want to come check out my silver tipped spruce at my house i just love that okay though that was the golden rain tree that grew next oh sorry yeah so sorry that is actually a real tree i did look it up i'm not a tree farmer i just don't know the way rock hudson does i mean yeah he's the expert i guess um again the kisses are great they have some great smooching yeah. There's three kisses. I mean, she kisses two other men before she kisses Ron and she reacts to all of she them. She doesn't kiss them. They kiss her just for the record. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Harvey kisses her on the cheek because all he's promising her is a platonic friendship, like barely acquaintances practically where he's going to be physically distant and just, you know, vacationing all the time. And then Howard, the married man who is unhappy with his wife at home, you know, throws himself on Carrie and she has to push him off. And then there's Ron. And she like doesn't even know what to do with it. She's like kind of shell-shocked after she pulls away from Ron. Like, what just happened? Wait, did I just consentingly kiss another man? And did I enjoy it? Wait, this wasn't forced on me? And oh, the part where she's like coming down the stairs and she falls into his arms. I was like, ah, oh, love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because she's strong and she can handle herself. Like, you know, you have a lot you're doing on your own. And sometimes it's nice to have a partner who will metaphorically and literally catch you. There's also that book when we first meet the kids and they come home from school for the weekend and Carrie is getting ready for her night out where she wears the red dress. Kay sees that she has a book on her nightstand and she picks it up and she reads the spine and she's like, are you reading this? I didn't know what to make of that. Like they never say what the what book it is. And I was trying to think like, we never see the cover. We just see Kay. Kay reads the spine and she's 
like shocked. Maybe I don't I don't know if it would have been Lady Chatterley's lover or something in that vein, you know, something a little spicy. And I do feel like you're right. She was probably reading something kind of spicy. She's wearing something kind of spicy. She's finally ready, wants to be seen, step out into the world. And the world she steps out into is the most boring place ever. Yeah. And they're not they're not ready. They take it as like, I mean, Howard in particular sees like, oh, red dress. She's hot to trot. They're just the worst. I do love that scene with the doctor where she's getting headaches and he's like, hey girl, your headaches will stop if you marry Rock Hudson. I thought that was kind of him like, you know, overstepping his professional bounds a little bit. Although I guess we've already gotten a sense that in this town, everyone is up in everyone else's business. I mean, there are no secrets. Nothing is sacred. Like even when she gets the telegram that her kids aren't going to be coming home for the, the weekend, the guy that gives her the telegram, he already knows what it says. He read it. He's like, hey, sorry, the kids aren't coming home this weekend. And he then he hands her the telegram. Well, I also think the doctor thing called back to Magnificent Obsession. To me, that was almost like a callback. Like I know this is a separate work. I know it's a separate book, but that's how it felt. Like the friendly doctor, the doctor that's going to change everything for you. Oh, sure. Yeah. I did write down the line, just look at that car. Just look at that man. It's always the quiet ones. That's what they said when she brings Rock Hudson into the club. That's Those are the things that are said. And it cracked me up. So I love that when Carrie and Ron go to that party together, he is absolutely able to step into that world. He's got that three-piece suit that fits him great. So he's ready to put on the armor he needs to go into that world. And she's wearing her conventional black velvet with the classic, you know, strand of pearls around her neck. Very 50s. Very like, it reminded me of Rosemary Clooney in White Christmas. It's very that. And even though he is, you know, in camouflage kind of, he still gets called out for, you know, his tan. Oh, he works outside. You know, he physically looks so much different from all the other men in that room. I also think they're super insecure and kind of threatened by him. Because we know that he's confident in himself and like, really genuinely likes the person that he is and really genuinely lives by a specific code. So I almost wonder that they're picking that up and it's like them trying to tear him down a peg any way they can. First of all, he's clearly way more physically handsome than they are, but he's also got that like that vibe, that energy about him of like, I really don't care what you think. He is deriving his happiness and sense of self-worth and accomplishment from something other than money. Yes. Oh, great point. Sarah, you make all the best points. This is great. Thank you. Because that, that we're all about money. It's about getting the job at the oil company and becoming a high-powered executive and all that. Marrying the right trophy wife, having 2.5 kids in the house with the picket fence. All that stuff is associated with money and like superficial outer, your outer shell. And yet none of them are happy. Maybe Sarah is, but she can traverse both worlds. But none of them are truly happy. The people that we see that are happy in this movie are people that subscribe to Ron's ideals of how to live their life yeah that your your happiness doesn't come from money it comes from inside you and the decisions you make that's why he can have a good and equal relationship with her that's why i think it's so important to see him as like a man on screen and a partner because he views it as we're equals and we're coming together to build something the way that me and my friends built together that beautiful gathering and party and just as i'm taking the time and care to grow these trees that will take years and years and years we're gonna grow together um as opposed to like I don't even know what those rich people do. Just like living in there. We have to do it this way. Keeping up with the Joneses. These are the boxes we have to tick. He's not about that. She has money. She's a wealthy widow. So she doesn't need to marry someone who's rich because she's already got the money. And he doesn't care about money. But then this rude people in town that say that he does. And she just has to get over it. She has to be like, I really don't care what they think. And she struggles. She really struggles with that. And we see that on screen, which is amazing. Just to see a woman trying to make up her own mind, struggling to figure out, you know, what is going to make me happy? Am I doing this because of societal pressure or because this is what I really want for myself? She's being selfish, perhaps for the first time in her entire life. Well, but and her being selfish makes the world a better place. Like her and Ron together make the world a better place as opposed to like her alone in her house living a sad, cold life, you know? Yeah, there's this expectation not only in film but in the world that a woman is going to lead a life of deprivation. Quiet desperation. Yeah, suffering. <laughs> like I'm going to I'm gonna deny myself so that all the people around me can be happy and comfortable. The martyrdom of it all. Yeah, that's just like a, a par for the course. That's what the world expects of women and she's bought into that but not by the end one of the things i want to talk about is um that scene where rod hudson rod hudson where <laughs> rock hudson um that's the only scene i can't like reconcile as much the scene where he's like trying to make her marry him 
And that seems off-brand for him. I, I didn't love that look on him. I understand it had to be there to push the plot along. But what do you make of that? When she goes in and she's like, hey, let's wait a bit. And he's like, no, yeah, I'm married well, So now. they've been on three dates and he's like, let's get married. Maybe they've been on more. We just didn't see them. But just like the let's get married and her being like, let's slow down. But him not being able to accept that. I wish that that had been different. But I guess, again, to advance the plot, it couldn't have been. But I wish they could have found another plot device, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was coming from a place of, you know, she is still she's trying to have it both ways. Right. She wants to make her kids happy and she wants to keep all of the country club friends. And she wants Ron and she's thinking, oh, you know, he can move in and we can live in my house, my nice, you know, upper middle class house. She wants both worlds. And he's like, he already knows that that's not what he wants for his life. And he knows that he loves her enough that he would change, but he would be miserable doing it. He knows what he wants. The line where he's like, I didn't realize that I could change for somebody, but I would change for you. And I don't think that's healthy. I was like, yes. He can see that he loves her enough that he would change and that he it would also make him miserable because that's not the life that he wants. Well, and it would make them miserable together. Yeah. He would be miserable and it wouldn't be like a true relationship. Because he'd be faking. But yeah, the rush is a little much for me. I did like too that he was like, your kids will get over it. Um, I really liked that. Because as someone who does have a step-parent, it takes a minute to get used to and then you, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm glad that my mom is happy. Like, that's all that we care about. And the kids' resistance, I think, is also, again, back to like Harvey. Harvey being con- a continuation of the dad that they lost and I'm sure that they miss. And Ron, I mean, it, I guess it would be weird if you were, you know, Ned, t- 20, 21 years old and your stepfather is 29. I mean, I guess that would be a little bit like- is Rock Hudson. Everyone suffers in comparison to Rock Hudson and his incredible handsomeness. If this like super handsome, but also not like crazy macho dude came in, I don't know. I'd be like, oh my gosh, what is this? My toxic masculinity cannot compute. Ah. Yeah. If I was Ned. I'm not Ned. Thank God. Ned's an idiot. Ned is an idiot. Um, okay. Final scene. I love that they switched that in the book. I didn't know that they switched it, but I like that he, the way they shoot the ending is she realizes that she wants to be with Rock Hudson. It's snowy. She goes to his house and like, so throughout the whole movie, he is upgrading his home. So at first, when she goes to his house, it's a shack that's part of a greenhouse. He does like a tour of the mill next door that was like belonging to his family and was like, this is where my grandfather chopped the wheat or whatever they do in a mill. And um, she starts mentioning the things she would like in a house. And as we see the movie progress, we see the house being more and more complete. So at the very end of the movie, he has built this house basically for, for the two of them, for him and for her. I do wish she had a little more input, but he did listen. And there is the Wedgwood thing that she loved and all the stuff that she wanted. So it's fine. Yeah. But he, he wants to follow her and she can't hear him. So he's like running after her and calling her name. And he, he, has, like, he slips and falls off a cliff. And we don't know if he's going to make it. And we're like, oh my God, did you just kill him off? And are we going to be depressed for the rest of our lives? But no, he was saved. Alita. It's Alita, right? Yeah. Yeah. That gets Carrie and brings her back to where he is. And he's, she sees like the house he built for her inside for the first time. And they know they're going to love each other forever. And it's, he's not dead. He just needs her to be there to help him through this. And for falling off a cliff, he has not a scratch on him. Let's just note that. You know, there's not even like a bruise on his face. No bandage, no nothing. He looks fine. He's just under a blanket. That's how you know he's sick. He's sleeping under a blanket. And he opens his eyes and he sees her. And then he says whatever the line is about home. And she says, yes, darling, I've come home. And then there's a window with a deer and it's beautiful outside and they're going to be happy forever. Yeah. You know, there is some... I guess there are some interpretations of the ending that are way more negative. Oh, tell me. They don't say what's wrong with him. There just is mention of a concussion after he falls and he's like unconscious for a while. But there are some, I guess there's some critics who believe that that means that now he's going to be an invalid and she's going to be his nurse and have to take care of him. No, I refuse that. Also, you know what? What if it is that? But it's like, again, we're talking about Magnificent Obsession, but it's like Magnificent Obsession where like, Yes, she might be blind, but you can bet that he's going to become a doctor that will cure it. So if for the people that say that, my answer to you is that she goes out and becomes a doctor and cures him and just call <laughs> it Magnificent Obsession too. Well, I, I worried because I was like, oh man, what if they're right? I, and then, so I watched that scene paying extra attention to it, thinking that there'd be some further sign that actually he's more gravely injured that they let on. And I was like, maybe when he fell, he broke his back and he's paralyzed. But 
when he wakes up, he, he puts his hand to his face and his knees lift up under the blanket. So he can still move his legs. He's not paralyzed. Spoiler alert. Good. Well, no, I just think that's such a negative. That's for people that like want their life to be hard. I don't, I don't want my life to be hard. I want to watch a movie and I want to watch people fall in love and like be happy. So I'm going to take that ending. They, they mentioned there's a concussion and that they want him to go to the hospital in an ideal situation. Maybe he had a brain injury. You know, maybe he hit his head. But, you know, he sees her. He recognizes her. So he doesn't apparently have any amnesia or anything. He can still see. Well, and there was lots of snow. He did fall into lots of snow that could have cushioned his fall. And I even think the doctor said something like he's going to have a period of recovery. And it sounds like there's going to be a full recovery. Yes, it sounds like sounds like they're gonna do this together like they're gonna heal him together yeah so there's there is some promise that he will be back on his feet at some point in the future and they can get married and live happily ever after in their converted mill and i like that it feels like she rescued him kind of too i don't think i would have liked it as much if he rescued her plus i wouldn't have liked that there was a gas leak because that means there's a fault in the house that he built and that means you can't like be safe there no, I think I think it was in the basement of her old house, the house that she had with her husband. Although, wait, there was like a slightly toxic masculine line up from his friend. Yeah. Where it was like, women just want you to come after them. You got to go after her. And I was like, well, not always. Yeah. I mean, this is the 1950s. So as feminist and forward thinking as this movie is in many ways, it is still very much a product of its era. <laughs> and it, we needed him to fall off a cliff because that's the most dramatic thing. We needed to know for one minute, oh my God, he might not make it. So we got to have the simple bliss of knowing that he made it that he's here to tell the tale yeah well and also the the producer on this film ross hunter really was constantly trying to crank up the handkerchief factor he was like we got to have the women sobbing in the aisles when they're watching this movie so of course he has to be thrust out to death's door and then yanked back at the last second although i'm gonna be real i don't think i ever cried at this movie i just enjoyed it yeah, but it made you feel, right? It, I did feel some feels. I think that that's what a good movie does. It does take you along on a journey. You're not just sitting there passively watching it. You are experiencing emotional highs and lows. Um, I think I found the line that I was thinking about with Rock Hudson, where they say he refuses to give importance to unimportant things. And I like that. Carrie says that to Alita at the end when Ron's still unconscious, right? I don't remember, but I just, I wrote it down because I felt like they had said it before too. So I was like, they really want us to know this. Yeah. Don't give importance to unimportant things and the people at home. That's a billboard. Which is what the country club set does. Yep. And they're not happy, even with their money. I needed this movie so much. I'm really glad we watched it. Yeah. Oh, I love this movie. Me too. Thank you for introducing it to me. Well, I was introduced to this movie by my friend Holly. She was the one who first showed it to me. So I feel like I've passed it on to the next person. Like it just makes everything feel a little bit better, you know? We need, yeah, entertainment that tells you to be like genuine and kind and is also beautiful. I, I don't feel like we can stress enough how fucking beautiful this movie is. It's like Art Design 101. Like if you were to ever look up like, what's the definition of a beautiful set? Like this would be that movie. Yeah. And there's thought put into every single frame, like the way mm -hmm. it's shot and the staging of the characters and this interacting with the set and each other and the camera, like everything is thought through. Everything means something. Yeah. It's not a subtle film at all. So I actually am going to ask you then. So I do have, uh, like a thing, a segment, that's the word, uh, where it's a double feature. And I would definitely say for this film, your double feature is very clear. It is Magnificent Obsession. While Magnificent Obsession is not as good, this is a way better movie than that, the two go great together. And I think Magnificent Obsession is like almost melodramatic to the point of comedic, but that's what I like about it. It's still a Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman. It's still Douglas Sirk. It's super crazy melodramatic with like, she's blind, like lots of stuff like that. Like that's what you check out after this, I think. What do you think, Sarah? Absolutely. I've only seen Magnificent Obsession once. Um, I know that was the first movie that brought Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman together. And that was, yeah. you know, both of them are coming from very different parts of their career. Jane Wyman was, you know, starting to be on the decline because she was getting older. And Rock Hudson had been like a contract player and had done like multiple cheesy B movies, like with cavemen and Native Americans and all that like schlocky stuff. And so he was looking to become a capital S serious actor. He was looking for a meteor role. And so that's how the two of them found Magnificent Obsession. There are certain elements that are kind of cheesy. He's like this exaggerated playboy type who has the speedboat and like gets into an accident. And yeah, it's a little bit like 
Okay. And I did spoil it for you earlier if you were listening, and I apologize for that. But again, it's just over the top. So I feel like this is a more realistic, like, beautiful movie, but that's an over-the-top, really beautiful melodrama that's that's pretty fun but is very silly um, in its, like, seriousness and ridiculousness. And you're right, it, it's like a new era for both of them, and then I feel like this is what lifted Rock Hudson up. Like, this was his first, like, big I'm a romantic leading man his value as a hollywood star rose dramatically he arrived after he did these two movies magnificent obsession made so much money that obviously they were like let's see if we can do it again and so then this movie happened and it was even better well and because of this we get giant like he goes on to make giant which is a great movie that's a great movie wonderful movie yeah so yeah and he obviously i would i will say the other things i feel like rock hudson is famous for are the doris day pictures what do they call them like the bedroom comedies is that what they call them i think so yeah at the point that he where he makes all that heaven allows those movies are in the future for him and they're wildly successful so yeah i think and we i mean we did cover like the Rock Hudson backstory that's really sad of just like he was a gay man who was not allowed to be out um, because of like societal pressures and because of his career. And I know that his partner, um, is it Mark Christian, uh, after Rock Hudson passed away, ended up suing his estate and winning. And that was like a big deal because they were partners, you know, that's his husband, basically. Um, So for him to get part of his estate is like a big win. Yeah, recognizing their the relationship. Yeah, for recognizing their relationship and the importance. I do think like that's cool that a court acknowledged that. Yeah, well, especially because I mean, Rock Hudson died, like I said, of AIDS complications. It was in the '80s during the Reagan presidency, and Reagan, Reagan didn't give a shit about the gay community. I mean, when they were trying to inform the public about the AIDS crisis, like they were laughing. They thought it was hilarious. Disgusting. So like. Yeah, the fact that his partner was able to be recognized in some small way as being meaningful to Rock Hudson's life, even though they didn't have the legal protection of a legal marriage. You put that beautifully, Sarah. Do you have any other like final thoughts that you want to share? The image, the image that just haunts me from this movie, again, is from that Christmas scene when Ned and the TV salesman roll the TV in and you can see her reflected in it. The TV salesman says to her, turn that dial and you have all the company you want right there on the screen. And the way they talk about it, there's just this impression that there are all these lonely housewives in homes scattered across America, just sitting on their couches alone in the middle of the day watching TV. And that's it. Well, and she's constantly saying how much she does not want this TV set because she understands that. And nobody listens to her, but Rock Hudson listens to her. It's like in her world, yes. no one listens, but in the world she has with him, he listens. And also I love that shot where they she hasn't turned on the TV, but you see the reflection of the TV screen and it's her face staring into the TV with like this blank look, like, oh my God, is this my future? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. The kids did not listen to her. And they it sounds like, because Ned said something about, you know, we could only afford, you know, this model. We couldn't get you a bigger one. So like they blew all their cash on a TV that their mom didn't even want. She had already made it clear they didn't listen to her. They were like, well, mom needs something to do in the middle of the day because, you know, dad's gone and we're going to be gone. Poor old lady. Well, she had something to do and his name was Rock Hudson. Hell yeah. Anyway, they get to be happy at the end. That's all that matters. Yep. Um, Sarah, you were an excellent guest. Thank you so, so, so much for being here. And everybody, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. Thank you.